Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 133, Aftermath. Now, first, as always, big thank you to all our new patrons, Vanya Bornova, Vladimir Milanov, Alex Uzo, and Douglas, as well as the return of patrons Gary Greenlaw and Simeon Floref. So big thanks to all of you. I really appreciate it. It's been a good month for Patreon after some down months. And well, just big th- shout out to all of you. Hope you're all doing well and healthy. Now, two other quick announcements. First, I gotta give a quick shout out to my friend Emil Tsenov in his new book, Cornelia. It's a modern kind of thriller novel set in Bulgaria with a ton of history thrown in. Granted, not so much Bulgarian history, it's more ancient Roman history, but it's a lot of fun. I read it recently and really enjoyed it, especially because it mostly takes place in and around Blagovgrad, which is a city dear to my heart. So if you want to read a fun little novel about uh, treasure hunters and uh, you know the mafia and history and all this kind of stuff, you can check it out. I'll put a link in the description. Because really, you know, I'm always dying for more Bulgarian historical novels and things. So we got to support those authors to get those made. Now, other announcement is just that another reminder, we have a special secret episode coming up probably next week. A special little conversation about a specific element of Bulgarian history. Can't give any more details than that, but that'll be a fun little extra for all of you. So look forward to that. Otherwise, We're approaching the end of this season, so probably sometime in, I think, April or May, I'll be doing the wrap-up episodes, and then by this summer, we will be talking about a semi-independent Bulgarian state for the first time in a long time, so we can all look forward to that. Now let's get into it. Last time, we covered the decision by Christo Botev to lead his 200-man cheta into Bulgaria despite knowing that the April uprising had already effectively failed. As a result, he and most of his followers were killed. In addition, we probed into the horrific details of the Batak massacre and saw how foreign diplomats and journalists played a vital role in both understanding the scale of the devastation and raising awareness about it internationally. Now, it's time to look at the aftermath of the April uprising before covering its sort of what partially resulted from it, you know, the wars and everything that will follow. Now, historian R.J. Crampton summarizes the uprising this way, writing, quote, In terms of immediate achievements, the April uprising can hardly be judged other than a disastrous shambles, end quote. However, he goes on to write that, quote, The April uprising was over. It had not dislodged Ottoman power, but it had irreversibly changed the nature of that power in Bulgaria. National consciousness, which in the political sense had been at a low level, was immeasurably raised. The moral power of the port, such as it was, had been destroyed. End quote. So I like that as a little summary that you can't deny that the April uprising was a bit of a disaster in terms of its immediate, kind of more concrete and military goals. But you also can't deny that it really raised awareness about Bulgaria's situation internationally, it galvanized public opinion, and it created a unifying event 
you know, this is getting a bit into my kind of uh, academic background in nationalism studies. But if you want to unify people, they need to have the feeling that things happen to them at the same time, right? This is why, you know, if you have, you know, yourself and then someone at the other end of the planet and and there's a, a lag in how you communicate, it's very hard to feel like you're part of the same group because the same things aren't happening to you. And when things do happen, they're not, it doesn't feel like they happen at the same time. But an event like the April Uprising was enough to make many Bulgarians feel that they had all experienced something together. And again, as Crampton noted, it really dealt a devastating blow to the moral power of the Ottomans. Because as we've seen, there's still plenty of Western Europeans who think that the Ottoman Empire should be preserved and that, okay, maybe they should, you know, people like the Bulgarians should be given more, uh, you could say, minority rights, but that the Ottomans are generally good governors and they can be left in charge of these things. And the kind of events of the April uprising, such as they were, you know, disseminated through newspapers and things, really dealt a devastating blow to people who wanted to make that argument. So for another perspective, Misha Glenny wrote that, quote, for all the planning of the BRCC in Bucharest, the rebels had no clear sense of either tactical or strategic goals. In large areas, the revolutionary committees failed to rouse the population. Where they did, they were unable to provide them with weaponry. Some of Bulgaria's finest revolutionary leaders were killed in absurd military adventures. And at the first hint of trouble, the majority of peasant warriors often abandoned their positions and fled, end quote. Now, this is another important perspective. As I mentioned before, you can't deny that the April uprising failed in terms of its military goals. And really, as Glennie points out, despite all this preparation, you know, I, do, does, I don't get the impression that the BRCC had really clear, achievable, tactical and strategic goals for the revolutionaries. It's something we've seen time and time again in these kind of 19th century revolutionary movements where a lot of young people think that, you know, the, the people will be with us, right? Just all they need to, is to know that the revolution is happening and everyone will get up and participate. But human beings are complicated and, you know, people might have Bulgarian consciousness, they might not have Bulgarian consciousness, but that's a hard thing to expect of people because, you know, Bulgaria's been through a lot of attempted uprisings and things, and they have seen how the Ottomans put them down. And asking peasants, who are likely already very economically marginalized, you know, their lives are hard, to make those kinds of sacrifices, that's a tough ask. And we saw what the results were. When we look at the legacy of the April uprising, we have to balance its role as a heroic story of resistance and bravery with its devastating toll. But what exactly was that toll? Our best estimates are around 10 to 15,000 people died. Around 200 villages housing more than 75,000 people were destroyed, with many other villages suffering damage. The Ottoman government reported about 500 Muslim civilian deaths. Now, unsurprisingly, the Ottomans were rather desperate to keep news about the rebellion under wraps as it would hurt their image abroad, as we've seen. But the American and British Protestant missionaries in particular, I've mentioned them before, they really made this impossible because by this point, they were living throughout Bulgaria. And through them, word passed to foreign newspapers. And it also passed from Bulgarian students at the American-run Robert College in Constantinople to foreign ambassadors by around May or June, just after the uprising itself. 
In other words, you know, there, there's a few modern movements and inventions that made this uprising so different. You know, one we've talked about is public opinion, and the other is just communications technology and the fact that the world by this point is much more global, and you now have, you know, these Westerners living throughout Bulgaria and living in Constantinople. And in this world where information travels faster, you've got newspapers, you've got public opinion, you just cannot keep an event like this completely under wraps. It's not possible. And that was one of the crucial differences for making the April uprising have the impact that it did. The Batak massacre alone prompted more than 3,000 newspaper articles and about 200 publications throughout Europe. There was just no way to keep this under wraps. And those details, you know, as horrific as, because they were so horrific, they couldn't not sway European public opinion. But now I want to go through some of the major powers and talk about how the information getting out about the April uprising in particular kind of affected them. So first is Britain. Now, in Britain, the liberal press breathlessly reported on the horrific details of the Bulgarian uprising, while the conservative prime minister Benjamin Disraeli dismissed it all as coffeehouse gossip. No surprise, Disraeli was in favor of maintaining the status quo with the Ottoman Empire, because for the British, this was tremendously important because they really did not want the Russians to get to Constantinople and to get access to the Mediterranean. They also didn't want the Russians to kind of expand more in the Caucasus uh, and more towards British possessions like Egypt. So the status quo is very important for Disraeli, but because it was important for him and kind of for geopolitical reasons for the whole British Empire, that doesn't mean it wasn't a political tool. The retired politician William Gladstone wrote two essays about the uprising and used it as an excuse to attack his conservative opponents and whip up public opinion. He even personally visited Batak, which is why there's a prominent street in central Sofia named after him. Now, Gladstone's words made it clear, as I discussed a bit in the last episode, that the events of the April uprising were viewed from him from a rather unsubtle anti-Turkish lens. I mean, you, you really can't call Gladstone impartial. He had a strong anti-Turkish, anti-Ottoman uh, basis even before the uprising, and he saw these events as his opportunity to really take that opinion and use it as a political tool. Gladstone wrote that the Turks were, quote, upon the whole, from the black day when they first entered Europe, one of the great anti-human specimens of humanity. Wherever they went, a broad line of blood marked the track behind them, and as far as their dominion reached, civilization disappeared from view. They represented everywhere government by force as opposed to government by law. For the guide of this life, they had a relentless fatalism. For its reward, hereafter, a sensual paradise, end quote. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, even from my perspective, like, that's a rather extreme statement to say that, uh, you know, the Ottomans meant the disappearance of civilization and that their fatalism comes from uh, a focus on the afterlife. I mean, even just the, the term a sensual paradise, it's it's really playing into kind of Orientalist views of the Ottomans and the kind of broader Islamic world that aren't really that fair. But still, it's important to understand, even if I think it's a bit much, that this was the language coming out of, you know, a very, very prominent British liberal politician. And so this had a real impact. This is what the British public were hearing. And well, it's pretty persuasive stuff. So France for their part. Now, France was also pro-Ottoman because they also wanted 
the status quo there. But even French diplomats were eventually swayed by the details of the April uprising and decided to pass along reports of the devastation there. The French National Assembly debated the issue and Victor Hugo himself even spoke up on behalf of the Bulgarian victims. But French policy did not change, though they did eventually join in the condemnation of the Ottoman reprisals. In essence, following the ouster of Napoleon III from France, remember we talked about that, the French were no longer very interested in supporting the Ottomans. So they were a little wishy-washy on this, you could say. Now, the British, again, were still committed to backing the Ottomans, but the French position was important because it would be very hard for the British to act alone in backing the Ottomans in the case of a war or something. You know, Britain and France together, they could support the Ottomans, as they basically had done in the Crimean War. But Britain alone, that's really tricky. And then you combine that with the fact that British public opinion was pretty against the Ottomans as a result of all these details, and Britain's ability to exercise its generally pro-Ottoman policies becomes really, really tricky. Now, switching over to Russia. As I mentioned, the government in Russia was against intervention, but pan-Slavic activists within the bureaucracy and the diplomatic corps were doing what they could to push the country towards intervention in Ottoman affairs and basically towards war. Now, related to this, Austria-Hungary was unsurprisingly very unmoved and uninterested in these events because Austria-Hungary was also very committed to the Ottoman status quo and basically just wanted to take advantage of the ongoing revolt in Bosnia to take that territory. But as a, as a whole, Austria-Hungary was very, very worried about a large and powerful Slavic state or states appearing in the Balkans, basically Bulgaria and Serbia, because they had such a huge Slavic population themselves. And they thought that if that population were to see a kind of powerful new Slavic country arise out of the Ottoman Empire, it would give them a blueprint for doing the same out of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So they were very kind of for the status quo. Now, what about the Ottomans? Despite their success in putting down the April uprising, there was still a lot of very strong discontent within the Ottoman government. This manifested in the fact that on the 30th of May, 1876, Sultan Abdulaziz was deposed by his own ministers, with reformers like Midhat Pasha playing a major role. Remember, Midhat Pasha used to run basically more or less Bulgaria out of Ruse. Now, on June the 4th, the former Sultan committed suicide in one of his palaces after asking for scissors to cut his beard and using them to slit his arms in the insides of his elbows. Now, his nephew Murad V then became the new Sultan. Murad was more of a reformer and was generally viewed more favorably in Western capitals. He had traveled and made a good impression. He favored a constitution and had worked with reform-minded elements in the government to help orchestrate the overthrow of his uncle. But the Ottomans were still struggling, particularly with their debt. Now, the Irish banker and diplomat J. Lewis Farley wrote of the Ottoman government around this time, quote, no matter what their origins, however, the first thought of modern Turkish statesmen is to amass money. They know their tenure in office is insecure, and they seize the opportunity. It is true, there is always speculation and corruption at the port, but these habitual vices were, to some extent, kept in check by Faud and Ali. Since the latter's death, however, all control has ceased, and corruption is the new rule from the highest to the lowest. Their creed is, the country is going hopelessly to the dogs, let us take care of ourselves. 
In England, the richest country in the world, the prime minister receives 5,000 L, I don't know what L refers to, pounds, I guess, per annum. In Turkey, the poorest country in Europe, the grand vizier draws 30,000 a year, while the civil list and the salaries of all the high officials are vastly more than those of the queen and ministers of Great Britain, end quote. Yeah, so Farley makes the situation very clear that corruption is by now endemic in the Ottoman government from the highest levels to the lowest levels, and that this is really damaging them. I mean, we've already talked about the outrageous Ottoman debt and how crippling it is. So this is all feeding into that. Now, in May, the Russian general Mikhail Grigorovich arrived in Serbia with about 500 Russian volunteers. Now, this, along with assurances from the Russian consul in Belgrade that Serbia had Russian support for war, finally, after all this time, convinced Prince Milan that war with the Ottomans was a good idea. Thus, by the time June 1876 arrived, the Ottoman government was in hands of these new reformers with their new sultan, and Serbia was finally moving towards war, in part over the Bosnian Revolt, which, again, is by now a pretty low-level thing. It's, you know, all the major fighting is kind of simmered down, but it's still happening. In June, a bit separate from that, a newspaper was founded in Braila to write about the Bulgarian uprising as well as more general anti-Ottoman activity in the Balkans. Now again, this showed the power of newspapers as a tool for spreading information and building support for the movement. Now, on the 17th of that month, Nikola Oprentov, one of the, well, basically I think the last remaining member of Botovsceta, was actually finally captured, along with a few other followers, after an exhausting escape through the mountains. Now, from what I can tell, this is basically the final, final end of any real resistance in Bulgaria, the, the last gasp of the April Uprising. Now, literally the next day, the help that Obrenitov and his fellow revolutionaries had so desperately hoped for finally came as Serbia and Montenegro declared war on the Ottoman Empire. Now, to be fair, I've heard a few different dates. Uh, it's not super clear, but these are all within a few days of uh, Obrenitov getting captured, uh, which is a Again, just a, a sad thing that these poor Bulgarian revolutionaries, right? They're, they're hoping for foreign help. And literally, it's like the moment the last of them is out of the fight, it comes. But such is history. Now, ultimately, the April uprising clearly was not reason enough for the Serbs to get involved, but promises of Russian support and the chaotic change of government in Constantinople, along with ever-increasing internal pressure, seemed to finally be enough to push Prince Milan to war. Now, in the weeks before the war broke out, Prince Milan did attempt to secure an alliance with Romania and admitted that he felt he faced basically war with the Ottomans or internal revolution. So Milan still wasn't super enthusiastic about the war, but really felt like he had no choice. And, well, should be clear, the Romanians were not interested in such an alliance. Now, Misha Gleni describes the state of the Serbian army at this moment. Quote, When war broke out, the Serbian army could field only 460 poorly trained officers. Together with 700 Russian officers who had followed Cheryanov in the spirit of Pan-Slavism, they commanded a total force of 125,000 undisciplined peasants. End quote. Now, he then goes to quote historian Gail Stokes, who described how, quote, the Serbs were not aware of the enormous changes that had taken place in the technology and tactics of warfare from 1860 to 1875 changes that made an untrained peasant force obsolete even in the Balkans. Serbian military thinkers had not yet learned the lessons of the Crimean War, 
the wars of Italian and German unification, and the American Civil War, all of which demonstrated that firepower concentrated in good defensive positions could withstand heavy assaults, and that only very well-trained, highly disciplined troops carrying first-class weapons could have a chance at offensive success. End quote. In other words, the Ottomans may have been the sick man of Europe, but their army still vastly outclassed that of Serbia and Montenegro. Now, this may not have meant much in the April uprising, where it was largely irregular forces fighting small, poorly equipped bands, but in larger scale engagements between entire armies, these differences will be felt far more. One primary example of this had to do with rifles. The Ottomans had modern rifles, which used cartridges or breech-loading systems. For context, their rifles were British or American-made and would be used by the British Army right up until the dawn of the 20th century and into the First World War by some other powers. So these were quality rifles. By comparison, the Serbs were using a mixture of decade-old rifles and even homemade variants. And this was a moment in history where new rifle technology was rapidly increasing how quickly and reliably a soldier could fire. And, well, I can speak to this personally because many, many, many years ago in high school, I did some Civil War reenacting with some family friends. And let me tell you, you take an 1860s rifle and you have to, you know, load it by you know, using a ramrod to press press each individual bullet into it and then pour a little bit of black powder in there and, you know, put the blasting cap on this uh, thing called a nipple and blah, blah, blah. It's a whole process. And you compare that to, you know, just even around the time of the Civil War, these were coming out, these repeating rifles, but just a few years later where you could basically put a cartridge in there and you could now fire several times without having to do much to reload. That is an enormous difference. You know, with that difference, every single soldier can suddenly put out vastly more firepower. And of course, then you combine this with, you know, a trained force against a largely untrained force, defensive force against offensive force. And you can see that the Serbs are really in trouble here. So over the course of the summer, the Serbs did make some gains, but as I alluded, discipline, tactics, and equipment failed them. They spread their forces out and used bayonet charges while the Ottomans massed their fire and easily overwhelmed Serbian attempts at advancing. Montenegro, for its part, had some key victories, but also failed to gain much territory as the Ottomans and Albanian resistance stiffened. You know, Albanians basically were more allied with the uh, Ottomans. They were still within the Ottoman Empire, but you know they were fighting to maintain the empire. Now, meanwhile, in Bulgaria, after the failure of the April uprising, Stefan Stambolov went into hiding in the village of Samovodeni, I think, outside of Likotornovo. After things had calmed down in July, he made his way to Svistov and then to Ruse, spending days hiding in sheds and closets along the way. Finally, he and some companions fled across the Danube under fire, dressed as Turks. He subsequently spent the summer rallying Bulgarian volunteers to help Serbia in the war against the Ottomans and even spent some time in Belgrade. Now, Elsewhere, more Bulgarians faced justice as the BRCC organizer Stefan Peshev was hanged in Sevlievo. But I will make this point, it is important that Stefan Stambolov survived. He is now really one of the only leading Bulgarian revolutionaries to have survived the April uprising, and he's one of the only ones that has not more of a political bent and less of a military bent. You know, there's still some old voivodas, uh, some Cheta leaders who survived, but most of those are fighters and less kind of politicians. But you know, Stefan Stambolov is going to become an important person because he's got a combination of those skills and he survived. 
Now, this month also saw the Russian consul in Adrianople, the correspondent of the French newspaper Figaro, and the correspondent of the German newspaper, I'm going to try to pronounce this, Kolnisch Zeitung, tour villages affected by the April uprising, further raising awareness of the scale of the devastation that Bulgaria was feeling. To help address this, a Bulgarian central charitable society was founded in Bucharest. The organization's goal was to help people who suffered during the aftermath of the uprising and to generally raise awareness for the Bulgarian cause in Europe. Its chairman was our old friend Kiryak Tsankov. But far and away, the even more momentous events were taking place elsewhere. On the 8th of July, Emperors Alexander II and Franz Joseph met in Reichstadt, now in Czechia. The purpose of the meeting was to develop a common policy for the League of the Three Emperors towards the Ottoman Empire as the crisis was unfolding in the Balkans. Although the details of that meeting, when what was agreed to vary slightly as no formal treaty was signed, in essence, the agreement was that Austria-Hungary could take Bosnia, Russia could take territory in Bessarabia, and then the Caucasus as well, and that Christians in the Balkans should gain some independence, and crucially, that neither power should allow the creation of a large Slavic state in the Balkans. Remember, I mentioned Austria-Hungary was desperately against that happening. Now, it should be pretty clear, the only Slavic state that this could have really referred to was probably Bulgaria. Maybe Serbia, but Bulgaria was more, I think, what they had in mind. Thus, with this agreement, with these two emperors kind of meeting at this palace in Central Europe, much of Bulgaria's 20th century history was really set in motion. A few days later, though, the final act of the April uprising began long after it was over. A group of 50 volunteers headed by Sidor Grucharov entered Bulgaria from Wallachia. Now, they had originally intended to enter with Botev's detachment, but missed their departure due to issues importing rifles from Russia. They lasted about three weeks before being killed at the end of July fighting in the Balkan Mountains. So I thought before I was talking about the last official basically act of the April uprising, but this was really the last, last one. Now, August saw that Bulgarian Central Charitable Society in Bucharest send a letter to the Petersburg Slavic Committee informing them that the society had decided to use all of its resources to group all Bulgarian volunteers in the Serbian Ottoman War under one flag and to effectively form a solely Bulgarian squadron. They asked for financial support for this endeavor, but as you probably know, by now the war was already not going well for the Serbs. After just a month of fighting, it was clear that Prince Milan's fears that the Serbian army was woefully unprepared were well-founded. The Russian general in charge of Serbia's army had performed terribly. Serbian soldiers had performed terribly. The Bulgarians had failed to uprise to rise up again as the Serbs had hoped. It's not really a fair hope, but you know that's what the Serbs thought might happen. And lastly, Russia had ultimately not provided the material aid that Prince Milan was led to believe would be coming his way. As such, the Serbs agreed to an armistice organized by European powers sometime in August. I searched a lot and I found a lot of kind of conflicting dates for this, but roughly around then. Now, during this truce, the political situation in the Ottoman Empire took yet another dramatic turn. Just 93 days after Abdulaziz was deposed by his ministers and replaced by Murad V, Murad was overthrown. Essentially, Murad may have been pro-reform, but he didn't have the nerves to rule. 
Now, historians estimated some combination of alcoholism and weak nerves that led to what was essentially a mental breakdown. A Viennese psychiatric specialist was brought in, but he said that the Sultan would need three months of treatment to recover. And, well, the Ottoman governing council didn't feel like they could risk keeping the Sultan on the throne, but unable to rule, and so on the 31st of August, he was deposed and replaced by his younger brother, Abdul Hamid. Murad was confined to a palace along the Bosphorus, where he received medical treatment and actually slowly recovered. Now, it was expected that Abdul Hamid, like his brother, would support the Tanzimat reforms advocated by the governing council, which put him into power, but, well, only time will tell. Now, soon after the coup in Constantinople, the short-lived truce between the Ottoman Empire and Serbia ended, as the Ottomans were unwilling to agree to peace terms suggested by the great powers. A major loss in September basically meant that the road to Belgrade was now open, and it looked as if Serbia's brief period of independence could well come to a crushing and disastrous end. Around this time, Bulgarian volunteers were sworn in and ready to fight on behalf of Serbia, but that was hardly enough to make a difference by this point. But the Central Charitable Society in Bucharest was still working tirelessly to aid the Serbs. On October the 12th, representatives from the society, Kiryak Tsankov, uh, Pantare Nabu- Pantali Nabotkov, and others, met with the Slava Committee in Petersburg again and proclaimed their readiness to prepare Cheti to attack northern Bulgaria and disrupt Ottoman supply lines. But by this point, it wasn't looking like the Serbs would hold out long enough for that to happen. By the end of October, the Serbian army was on the brink of collapse and Russia finally issued a 48-hour ultimatum to the Ottomans as it began to mobilize its own army. The ultimatum demanded a truce in the beginning of negotiations or Russia would declare war. The Ottomans agreed and officials began gathering in November for a, and a little bit before, kind of for an official conference in order to start discussing the issues. And this would involve Russian as well as British and other diplomats and kind of figure out, okay, what are we all going to do about this? Now, Russia and Britain were the two main players at the conference, and Russia obviously was poised to invade and had pan-Slavic elements in his government strongly advocating for the expansion of Russian influence at the expense of the Ottomans, as well as supporting the Serbs and Bulgarians. Now, Britain, for its part, was still controlled by Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli and the Conservatives, who, you'll remember, were still pro-Ottoman and wanted the status quo, and were deeply concerned about how Russian expansion might affect the British Empire. Otherwise, France, Germany, and Austria-Hungary, and Italy were all officially represented, and even the U.S. Consul General, who had just witnessed the aftermath of the April Uprising, was taking part. As the conference got underway, the Bulgarian Central Charitable Committee held a national assembly to put together its own proposal for how to solve the Bulgarian question. It was signed by Kiryak Tsankov, Ivan Vazov, Stefan Stambolov, Olympipanov, and others, before being submitted to the great powers at the conference. Thus, in the latter days of 1876, while the conference was still coming to its final conclusion, the Ottoman government, led by the Young Ottoman Movement and reformers like Midhat Pasha, suddenly and shockingly debuted a new Ottoman constitution. In a way, this new document was aimed to get ahead of the conclusions of the conference. It created a Senate filled with Sultan appointees, as well as a General Assembly where the broad population of the Ottoman Empire would be represented, though not directly. They would choose deputies who would then choose the representatives. Now, this constitution didn't really limit the Sultan's power much, but the hope was that by giving non-Muslims and non-Turks representation in government, 
foreign powers would no longer have a legitimate reason to intervene on their behalf. So you can see what they're doing, right? Before this Constantinople conference comes out and says, you know, we think you need to say, give nominal independence to the Bulgarians. The Ottomans are jumping ahead by giving the Bulgarians some level of representation in the Ottoman government through this new constitution. But well, We'll have to wait until next time to see just how people inside and outside of the Ottoman Empire will react to the new constitution and what that conference in Constantinople will ultimately decide. What we can say now is that the future of Bulgaria and the Balkans is on a knife's edge, and we have to see where it will fall. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast, again, on pause during COVID and everything at bghistorypodcast.com. And, well, you can see a link to Emil's book in the description as well, so check that out. And thank you all, and I'll catch you in the next one.